I had no idea that they had really been working on that song for like seven years. And I worked on it for probably four to five hours. And somehow, according to Brad, I cracked the code and it allowed for the song to get finished. I'm Brian Paris with Sounds of Berkeley. On today's episode, we've got John Mirasola's interview with producer Andrew Sarlo, a 2011 music production and engineering alumnus who's had a hand in some of the biggest indie releases of the past few years. He's worked on records by artists including Bon Iver, Nick Hakim, Empress Of, and Big Thief, whose album UFOF just earned him and the band a Grammy nomination for Best Alternative Music Album. John spoke with Sarlo over the phone just before the Grammy nominations were announced. They talk about Sarlo's production philosophy, which is way more people-focused than gear-focused, and about his journey from recording a Bon Iver sound-alike track for a Berkeley class to playing a crucial role in producing the opening song in the band's new record. You'll also hear why it's maybe not such a good idea to produce two albums for one band over the course of just a couple months, unless that band's Big Thief. If you're into indie music or creative production, this episode's for you. Enjoy. So 2019 has been quite a year of releases for you. You were a collaborator on the new Bon Iver album, I, I. Uh, you mixed the new Chastity Belt album, uh, and you also produced these two wildly different Big Thief projects, UFOF and Two Hands. And that's really only the very top line from the last 10 months. Obviously, some of that stuff had been in the works for a while, but how does it feel to see these really major accomplishments enter the world one after the other this year? The year's been totally... Totally cool. I mean, it's like, I'm definitely not someone who can sit back. So despite everything coming out and receiving a lot of kindness from like my immediate community and stuff, I guess like, you know, it's the, the, the American uh, conditioning, man, I just want more. So for better or worse, <laughs> but no, it's been super cool. And yeah, I just I just get excited anytime that someone very genuinely likes any of it. Yeah, I mean honestly, it's really easy to like the stuff that you're putting out lately. Well, <laughs> you got to thank these artists. I've I can't say this enough. Anytime that anyone ever talks to me about specifically like Big Thief and you know, they tell me, "Oh my god, like I love this album. I I can't let a second go by without saying like if there, if Adrian was not writing songs like this, I don't know how palatable it would be, or rather, I don't know how universal it would be, because you get all different types of people that like the music, and I just think whether conscious or subconscious, her songwriting is the the way. It's it's the reason. Yeah, absolutely. That said, though, there is. I mean, there's clearly something that you're bringing to it, um, and I've been, I've been trying for the last like week or two to to wrap my head around a through line because I mean, you produce pretty different stuff from project to project. It's too easy to say that there's like something organic to your style, but to my ears, at least, even in your more like pop-oriented productions, it seems like there's this attention to like what in the mix is keeping things human, or wow. like what's keeping what's giving a sense of space. So I'm I'm wondering like how you would describe your sound or your aesthetic or if you think you even have one as a producer. Man, I'm flattered with you just saying all that, but I can give you a really short answer and it's I definitely get pretty overwhelmed while working on a song that if I can't 
connect at all to like the point of the song, then I don't even understand why I'm there. So it usually relies on the vocals and yeah, having to make that be clear. Like why is something competing with it? Yada, yada, yada. But ultimately it's, it's all chemistry. It's, it's the chemistry of everyone working together and whatever ends up happening is a series of conversations and, you know, compromising and aligning in some way. And, and maybe I bring some kind of calmness to the situation, if I may say so myself. Sometimes I'm everyone's hmm. stressed, everyone gets stressed, and I'm not unstressed sometimes, but I definitely feel like I can quarterback the situations <laughs> if necessary. I don't know if I really answered your question. No, 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 no. It is. I, I'm going to follow up, though, because I am curious, like, are there particular kinds of sounds or particular sorts of processes uh, for production that excite you or that stay consistent from one session to the next? Or is, like, everything up at the air as you approach every new project? I feel like it's... I had this revelation, I guess, speaking of uh, Buck Meek, like, Back when we did his solo record, his, his his next solo record, we did it this past July 2019 in New Orleans. And this was maybe my sixth album that I've done with Buck. So when, you, when you're recording so often with someone, at that point you just want to do something new and different that's going to engage both of us and not, to put it really plainly, not get boring. I'm not someone who likes being in studios, if people can believe that. I think that studios are suffocating to the consciousness. Hmm. It's just hard to be in one place for hours. And I'm constantly, I guess, trying to find ways to make it fun for everyone and not have it be just this regimen. So for Buck's record, we had an amazing time uh, formatting the days. His amazing band of Matt Davidson, Austin Vaughn, and Adam Brisbane. It was all five of us in this old Victorian house in New Orleans uh, built in the late 1800s. And that alone is enough of like a change to make it interesting. But we went one step further and I recorded the whole record with dynamic microphones only and an eight-track tape machine. And then the band use zero headphones the whole time until the last day where we did a couple overdubs. Um, And then I formatted the days so that we would wake up, eat breakfast, and then record for two to three hours and then break for five to six hours and then get back in the Hmm. studio and record for three to four hours. And by the time we're done, it's like 9, 30, 10 p.m. And no one's overworked. No one's exhausted. We had a list of songs. And I was just keeping track of when they would play each song. And uh, it, it worked out incredibly. We were all pretty damn impressed by how efficient it was and how much fun it was. And it was just a revelation of like, man, I, I just want to do something new for myself first and foremost. And then I guess convince the people around me that we should do it. So <laughs> I guess that's what I try and focus on. I'm, I'm not much of a gear person i don't really get to uh i'm gonna be the least excited in the room if someone's like we gotta use this thing like i'm not gonna be really phased by that i'd rather the design of everyone's energy be the thing that's exciting Hmm. so using dynamic mics into an eight track is a way to to sort of standardize and simplify that part of the process in order to 
focus on the more human interpersonal elements of the production. In a way, yeah. I mean, Buck's music taste is very late 60s, 70s outlaw country from Texas. And he is from Texas, and that's like who Buck is. Like, if you're riding in Buck's car, he's going to either play some contemporary stuff or he's just going to play some outlaw country. And he made a record, which I had helped him with a little bit, that had already come out. And it, it was a pretty, like, you know, just record everything as best as you can kind of project. And for this one, kind of what sold myself on, like, getting this into a more interesting atmosphere was, you know what, let's do what people would call, like, a sh- idea and just only do dynamic mics to an to a Tascam 8-track. Nothing about the signal was, like, great other than it being interesting, I guess. And the playing was just on fire. So it ended up completely working out. But um, in some ways, yeah, it was nice to just be like, whatever, dynamic mics and never have to worry about like listening into any of these mics to make sure that they're working properly, like they're more dependable. So in a way, Hmm. I could I could agree with what you were saying. So I want to go back a little bit. Um, sure. Where does your interest in sound come from? Were there particular songs or records that like fascinated you growing up or, or that made you think, you know, like, I want to make stuff that sounds like this? What drew you to recording? You know, everyone has like the, the story of when they were a kid or whatever. But when I was a teenager, like I, I remember the biggest thing was for Christmas, I was very lucky to get a laptop. And when I had gotten the laptop, I kind of got obsessed with GarageBand because me and my friends were playing music and stuff. And it wasn't so much I was recording them. I was just messing with music. It wasn't like uh, in any way pro audio, just messing around with music. And it really sparked like this interest in listening a little deeper to music, whether I knew it or not. And I would say I could really credit electronic music actually to be the thing that got me the most motivated about recording Hmm. it was the most sound design forward and the most uh stimulating in so many ways and i would put on headphones and it would just be dazzling like obviously if someone's never heard something like aphex twin ever before in their life and then you play like five aphex twin songs one after the other their mind's going to be jelly so it's like having that at a young age, I was just like, holy, you know, I'm not going to curse. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And I guess maybe they don't deserve more credit than they already have. But God, Radiohead was a big deal for me. So when I was like 14 or something, my sister had bought Hail to the Thief. And it, she yeah. somehow got it on in the car with my dad, which is kind of an amazing feat if you know my family. And I didn't want to admit it out loud because, you know, you're a teenager and you don't like anything anyone else is doing in your family. But I was loving it. I was like, holy, again, I was about to curse. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> and I would argue that it was what got me interested in recording bands because they felt the most transcendental of conventional band recording i'd say but that that's a long answer to an easy question no that's awesome i mean between apex twin and radiohead those are great reference points too i would say i would say flying lotus is the culprit 
<laughs> G- giving credit to any of these artists, maybe I'm a little uncomfortable, but it's just like I heard I was on iTunes music store at the time they were promoting new releases and stuff by the album artwork. And I was really struck by Flying Lotus's album artwork for the album Los Angeles. And I was like, yeah. what is this? I put it on and I was like, oh my God. And then at the same time, this really small electronic band that I believe they make music all remotely together, but it's a band called Kiln. And it, their album cover for the album Dusker is next level. It's like a, a still from like Interstellar or something. And this is like 2006 or something like that. And I was just blown away. And then later came Aphex Twin. That would be pretty heady if my intro to all electronic music was Aphex Twin. <laughs> <laughs> so then you came to Berkeley and who were the people you were working with at Berkeley who were kind of shaping how you were thinking about production? Oh boy. Well, first off, I mean, I I never in my life had taken any kind of academic course that was so specialized and I fully immersed myself. So I definitely have to put credit to the curriculum of the whole recording program and just how engaging that was. You know what? It wasn't until the end of my experience or the middle to end of my experience in the recording program that I got really close with Susan Rogers. And Hmm. she is a powerful sage, I'd say. She kind of has something to say about anything. And the way that she is thinking about the answer is a lot more emotional and a lot more scientific than it is technical. And I guess that is something that I relate a lot more to. I'm, I'm not someone who like they're growing up. There's kids that like no cars, like they're just like obsessed with cars for some reason. And they're like 10 years old <laughs> and they could just like see all these models of cars and be like, Oh my God, that's a whatever. I was never like that. And insert Susan Rogers, and she's talking about like the brain and how it relates to music and then chemistry between people and motivations and insecurities, vulnerabilities. And I'm like, oh, my God, like this is a wealth. And she she was huge. She was super huge in getting me to kind of return to the whole point of music and not like thinking about technicalities, I'd say. So how does that relate? I guess in theory, you have to know enough technical stuff to to achieve that psychological effect. So was it just that she was opening a different door into the same knowledge that seemed more interesting or more useful to you? I guess it was kind of this perfect timing because I don't know how familiar you may be with the recording program over there or uh, the listeners here, but it starts out like crazy technical and almost mathematical and it was almost more confusing that it was starting out that way than anything and it slowly (laughs) the older that you get in the program they kind of the faculty and curriculum kind of puts a little bit more trust in you to go for something and Susan Rogers's courses were given to older students because they were just older or just later in the curriculum And Mm -hmm. by the time I was taking classes with her, I think the course number was 318, which is where you do your sound alike project. And 
I haven't told Justin Vernon this yet. I told my good friend Brad Cook, who's his childhood best friend, but my sound alike was to do Skinny Love by Pony Vare, and Susan Rogers <laughs> was my teacher. And me and my good friend Sean Tracy went across the street to Daddy's Music. We bought a resonator guitar that we would eventually return. We thought he had done it with that. I doubt he did. And then we recorded the guitars. I had another friend come in and sing who did a pretty good Justin Vernon impression. But I inevitably was pulling out my hair, totally depressed, thought I could never do this as a career in any way. And I had to write Susan Rogers, who was my teacher. I had to write her saying, are you available at your office hour? I, I, I need to talk to you. So this is before the project needed to be submitted in. And I just totally arrived to Susan Rogers' office, just in total shambles. She's looking at me like with a little bit of a smirk on her face. And I tell her like, this is impossible. There's no way... I can do this. And she, in the most calm way, she was like, Andrew, you passed. The (laughs) point is for you to get completely deconstructed, to be built back up again. And it was very military in a way. And she she had Hmm. maybe some questions about that part of the curriculum as well. But it was huge to have her on the other end of that experience. She is so empathetic and compassionate and understanding. And honestly, if I could lend one testimonial to Berkeley and to anyone listening, get Susan Rogers to be your teacher. That's all. This seems like a good place to transition then. How did the the Bon Iver project come about? It's a funny story only because I really didn't believe my friend Brad. So basically what happened was is I was producing a record for my good friend Meg Duffy. She go, They go by Hand Habits. And uh, I was doing a session with them. And Brad comes over to the studio because he wanted apparently wanted to meet me. And I was like, okay, here we go. So Brad shows up. And within... And he, Brad has told me this... He told me this just weeks ago and confirmed this. That apparently in the first few minutes of talking to Brad, we talk about Justin... And I and I said a snooty comment about where Justin's music has gone. Brad laughed and said, I want to get you in the room with Justin. And I was like, whatever, <laughs> man. Okay, sure, sure. And then it was a few months later that I got an email from Brad saying, what are you doing in February? And my February was a total disaster logistically. And I spared almost the only two and a half days in the whole month to go over to Sonic Ranch in Texas and inevitably contribute to Justin's album. And it was all thanks to Brad Cook. Big shout out to Papa Producer Dad Brad. <laughs> so you had two and a half days there. And what were what were you working on? How did you approach that time? Well, I totally showed up thinking that Justin was told by his good friend Brad, I got this guy... Let's see if you guys vibe, you know what I mean? And I'm just kind of nervous to have to like prove myself to someone who I admire. And I was very grateful that when I showed up, the first person that I run into is Justin, giant smirk on his (laughs) face, shorts, flip flops, basketball jersey. And I said, hi, Justin, I'm, I'm Andrew Sarlo. 
and he just goes, Andrew Sarlo, yes, so glad you're here. I'm, I've been listening to the new Big Thief album at the time. It was uh, the third record, UFOF. He's like, I've been listening to it every morning. Uh, yes, I have so many things to ask you. So glad you're here. And I was trying to stop smiling so much, I think, for the first like two hours of meeting Justin. And it progressed into him showing me tunes, me, him, Brad Cook, and Jen Wasner all in a room. He's, he's playing me songs that he's got on the docket for the album. You know, I maybe am a little... Uh, the, he played me the first song, and it's a song called I, 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 and at the time, I was just not into it. I was like, what is going on here? This is ridiculous. This seems really messy. Uh, just play another song. Just play another song. So he played another song. He didn't even say anything about it. He played another song. It sounded a little bit better. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he played a song called Faith. And there's one moment in the chorus, I believe, or rather just like a ramp up energy moment where Justin sings in a way that I'd never heard him sing before. And I just lost it. The song finishes and I just stood up and I paced around. I said, are you guys, you guys want this? You want me to like really talk? And they're all laughing at me. And I just unloaded on Justin asking him, or not asking, I was just telling him like, man, I just don't care at all what you do musically. I just want to hear you sing. And it <laughs> was a big moment, I guess, for everyone in the room, including myself, to like even feel the, the confidence to say that to someone whose voice is so monumental. And it was just an impression made. For the next two days, Brad gave me a hard drive with songs that uh, they've all been working on, go into the studio, open up, and I decided my first song I wanted to check out was I, I because it was just such a mess and Justin did tell me that he wants it to be the first song on the album. So I was like, well, I want to get on this album. Uh, let me mess with this song that he said he wants on it. So I didn't think anything of it. But I start working on that song and I hear everyone upstairs like eating through the door. And I go upstairs and it was like eight dudes all listening in through the walls to what I was doing. It was very <laughs> anxiety inducing. But I had no idea that they had really been working on that song for like seven years. And... I worked on it for probably four to five hours and somehow, according to Brad, I cracked the code and it allowed for the song to get finished. And I, I helped out on a, a couple others and it was just very brief. And I had total separation anxiety leaving Sonic Ranch because I had never in my life been given access to someone's music like that and been giving, given so much room to quite frankly do whatever I want because it's up to them to choose what they want to put in the song. So I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to do whatever here and see if it, if they like it. So it ended up hmm. being a pretty powerful experience for me. Cause I, I still feel like I'm very young in what I'm doing and to have someone who's maybe 10 years older than me, give me, you know, a path to add something was really, it was a big deal for me. Yeah, and it, I mean, it sounds like the focal point for you was something akin to what you were saying earlier, which is that uh, you sort of look for the voice as the anchor, and it seemed like maybe a lot of stuff was was kind of cluttering it. Yeah, I mean, it, where are we right now? You know, it's like 2019, about to be 2020. There are so many obvious, super obvious things that are wrong being a human right now. What what are we singing about? Why why are we even making a song? Why are we even releasing an album? 
Why, why are you deciding to do this thing that's inherently narcissistic? Like, bring something to the table here. And I feel like it's easy for me to say, because I'm not the one writing the songs, but, <laughs> you know, it's like, what, what is the point of perpetuating things that matter? And I feel like if people want to sing, let, let's sing. Let's go. You know, let's give it hell. Let's, let's do this. And uh, I, Justin, apparently, he, he liked that I said that. And he said that he was singing for like two weeks at Sonic Ranch before they finished the album, just doing the, all the vocals. And it was, it was <laughs> super cool. I was, I was very, very pumped about being associated and having those guys as friends now. It's, it was very cool for me. I, I'm very happy, very grateful. I want to transition, if we could, to one more subject, which is at some point your friends in Big Thief say to you, we want to put out two albums. What's the process like from the production side, figuring out how to develop those projects so that they could be these distinct things in their tone and in their theme, but that they'd also complement each other as well as they do? I mean, UFOF is this atmospheric and layered thing, and Two Hands is super immediate and raw. How do you approach producing twin albums that are supposed to have their separate souls? Well, we are all really close friends. And there was a moment where it was not going to necessarily be expected that I come on board for UFOF in two hands. And I remember showing up to them, demoing all the songs that were on UFOF in two hands and some others in a house in Topanga uh, February 2018 they were there all month and I went three times over that house and on the third time I just gave a giant speech a super passionate like almost like if you can imagine a coach's speech in you know the locker room when there's a minute left or whatever whatever pep talk got really excited laid it all out and they decided that they want to do the records with me so at that point, I'm just like trying to catch up to them. They're like, we have all these songs. We want to do two albums, not a double album. The first one we think of Celestial and the second one we think of as Mud. We're going to book this time, take a break, and then book this time. That that ended up being three weeks, five-day break, three weeks. And I was so, I guess, motivated to do this that it never really occurred to me how insane that is until we started doing it and we did the first record obviously differently than the second record the first record we did a song a day pretty much like grabbing the basics and doing some overdubs and then the second record it was like whatever songs they felt like playing they would just give it a go but the first record we finished at 4 30 a.m the last day in the studio we mixed it in three days and finished at 4 30 a.m left at 5 30 a.m because Adrienne really wanted to listen to all of it down while we were mixing it and getting everything, or rather when we were finishing up like the last song, uh, the band went into the other room and sequenced the whole album. They knocked it out of the park. I think this sequence for UFOF is super cool. They come downstairs. We finish mixing the last song, Magic Dealer, with all of our hands on the faders being super cute. And then Adrian wants to listen to the whole record, so we stay another hour. And then we leave, and I, I left thinking, that album sucks. We just messed it up. It sounds terrible. We're screwed. Damn. 
and I am in a bad mood for five whole days, show up to the next studio, which was Sonic Ranch, and we give it another go, and we didn't get anything for four days. Nothing that was Keeper for four days. I believe the first song that we were like, we got we got it, was Cut My Hair, which is one of my favorite recordings that I've ever done with them. And that album, we did not finish it in three weeks. We took a long break. James ended up mixing the album again in New York. Rock and Sing, Forgotten Eyes, Those Girls, and Cut My Hair were songs that he mixed that we kept. And then we remixed other songs together we re-recorded Not in April of 2019 and then released the album. So it was, it was not like we did it both in three weeks and that was it. I think that that would be even more mad, but it was insane. My social life and personal life took a major toll from doing that. I'll never do that again. And <laughs> if people want to do that, I'm going to tell them all the reasons why not to do it for their sake. You know, like the only reason why I think Big Thief can get away with this is because the songs are that good. It's just like it, it's kind of impossible working on a Big Thief song and not wanting to be respectful to where this song is coming from for Adrienne. So it ends up working out. But that was crazy. Never do that again. To hear tracks from all the projects discussed in this episode, plus a sampling of other songs produced by Andrew Sarlo. Check out the Spotify playlist linked in the episode description. This episode was engineered by Tony Brown and Brandon Bachajan in partnership with The Burn. Our theme music is by Sleeping Lion. I'm Brian Paris, and this is Sounds of Berkeley. <laughs>